Uh, we are in the Sermon on the Mount. The reason we're doing the Sermon on the Mount is because uh, one of the things we have to come to grips with is that Jesus regularly taught in ways that were uncomfortable. And when he talked about the kingdom of God, he not only talked about what it was, he had to increasingly talk about what it wasn't. And we, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the reality that the word deconstruction, while we hear it in the news and we hear it all kinds of places um, in which people are deconstructing their faith, is seen as a very negative thing by Christians. But I, I, I've submitted to you that deconstruction is a necessary part of growth. And, and, and for some of our, our teens and our college students, Deconstruction is a necessary part in which the faith that you've learned about as children and maybe you've embraced because your parents embraced it, there's a part that when you begin to embrace it yourself, you have to decide what do I believe? What do I really think is true and what is real and what is right? And uh, That may look different for different people, but Jesus often taught in deconstructive language. He said things like, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you something else. And he said things like, after he would preach or he would throw something out, he would say, those who have ears, let them hear, assuming that there are people who will not have ears to hear or eyes to see. And so that's a lot of what Jesus is doing. Um, He's deconstructing this idea that some of the things that are being taught at this time were correct, and they were not. And it's something that we can learn from today when we struggle with faith and we struggle with Scripture and we begin to read and realize You know, some of the things I grew up with or some of the things I was taught early on may or may not actually be biblical or true. And so as we approach that, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' first and largest um, grouping of teachings on the kingdom of God. It's a single sermon that he gave, and he gave this sermon right after he has been baptized, he has been in the desert, um, and he has been tempted, and he walks out, and he goes away, and people are following him, and then he begins to teach. And one of the foundational um, scriptures that we've been looking at is Matthew eleven twenty eight, And it's one of the promises that Jesus gives that we often struggle with. And depending on the tradition in which you have come through or how you have approached Christ or what you've been taught about being a Christian, uh, this may or may not feel even um, true to you. But this is what Jesus says about his yoke. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, I heard this sermon over and over again in which, growing up, in which you were being yoked to Jesus. And so wherever Jesus was, that's where you were supposed to go, but yet he was going to be gentle as he took you to all the places he wanted you to go. And while certainly that can preach, and certainly there is some truth to that, that is not what this passage is talking about. Scott did a great job opening up our series a few weeks ago and then last week talking about hungering and thirsting for righteousness in which the yoke of a rabbi were the summation of their teachings and their interpretations of the scripture. And so what Jesus is saying here is not um, you're going to be yoked to me and you're going to go everywhere I go. What he's saying is take all of my teachings and the way things truly are upon you and you will find unlike the other teachings that have been placed upon you, Mine are easy, my burden is light, and I am gentle and lowly of heart. And this is the spirit in which the yoke of Jesus, or the Sermon on the Mount, is given to us. And so we've been on a journey now for the last year and a half as we've kind of dealt with the pandemic and come to this place of saying, so what are we really all about? And 
and what do we, uh, how do we move forward as a church as the world changes and as people change? And, and we've returned in some ways to the roots of what does the Bible say about us and about God and about following Him. And this is just a natural progression of where we're headed. And we're going to be in this series for quite some time because the Sermon on the Mount talks about all kinds of issues, all kinds of, of, of life practices. And we're, we're going to be here for months. So I want you to stay buckled in. Um, we're not going to be talking about one thing for months. One of the beautiful things about the Sermon on the Mount is he jumps from topic to topic. We're going to talk about marriage in a few weeks. And uh, we're going to talk about just dealing with other people and our relationships. We're going to talk about parenting. There are all kinds of things that we are going to see through the Sermon on the Mount as he begins to unpack what it means to follow him. As we look at the, the Beatitudes where we've been for the last three weeks, we are, instead of going through every Beatitude and really unpacking every Beatitude, because we did that about a year and a half ago, uh, you can go and you can find our website and you can see what on each individual one. We're handling these in groups just to see the big picture that's going to introduce us into the rest um, of this teaching. So thought we would start just by reading these. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. You'll find the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, this is the section that has come to be known as the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, verse 1. Remember, this is happening after Jesus has been baptized, after he's come out of the wilderness where he's been tempted. Uh, and these crowds are coming around him. And it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this idea of being blessed is pretty important to us, isn't it? I don't know anyone who would say, you know what I don't want to have happen in my life? I don't want to be blessed. One of the problems we have when we approach the Beatitudes is the problem that we typically as Western Christians have when we approach any scripture is what, what we want is a checklist of how to get those things. And if you'll just do these three things, then God's going to be with you and God's going to help you and God's going to be on your side and God's going to take care of you and, and life's going to be easy for you. I, I know some of us came into faith with some kind of gospel message that said something like this. If you will profess Jesus as your Lord and Savior and believe God raised Him from the dead, you will never struggle again. And it took you only about a hot second to realize, I don't think that's true. <laughs> because I'm still struggling. There's still suffering in the world. There's still things I wish weren't happening that are happening. And so I'm not sure that's true. And so our understanding of blessing is really crucial to understanding what Jesus is opening this sermon 
with. This is not a list for you to go and say, okay, I've got, I've got nine more things that I need to put on my list to do for God to be happy with me and God to give me stuff and God to make sure we don't get sick and God's going to make sure that, that we're taken care of financially and our kids are going to be great and we're just going to have these wonderful lives and then we're going to die and we're going to go to heaven. There's not a list in the Bible that gives us that, but we read the Bible through that lens, which is why Jesus is often saying, you have heard it said, but that's wrong. I mean, that's not exactly how he says it, but that's what he's saying. You have heard it said, but I tell you something else. And it's important as we enter into this that we understand the Sermon on the Mount is not just moral teaching in which if you're going to be a good Christian, you're going to have to do all these things or you're not a good Christian. Instead, Jesus is challenging us to dive in to this and to struggle with it and to understand this. Where is our place in it? Where is its place in our life? How would God have us to respond and react to this? But it is primarily about the kingdom of God, not about obtaining the blessings of God. In fact, what Jesus is saying in these are not, if you will do this, you'll be blessed. What he's saying is, if this is you, you already are blessed. It's a change in the way we understand the yoke and the teachings of Jesus based on the yoke and the teachings of those that had come before him. And he's not the first one that he taught in this way. The language of blessing is throughout the entire Bible. We read it over and over again. Those who are blessed. There was a man that lived about 150 years before Jesus of Nazareth, whose name was Jesus ben Sirah. And he spoke also in nine blessings. So as you remember what Scott talked about, about the yoke of Jesus, that every rabbi had their yoke, their interpretation of the scriptures, and their disciples were intended to not only learn the scriptures, but learn their rabbi's interpretations of the scriptures. And Jesus was kind of unraveling the poor expressions of scripture, the yokes that were heavy and burdensome and were not true or right. To give you an example, this is, this is, these are the words of, of Jesus ben Sirah. And he wrote them down. I've got them. Go jump to the next slide if you would. These are his nine blessings that he offered. He said, these are nine, there are nine who come to mind as blessed. A tenth whom my tongue proclaims. So these are the people that are blessed in this rabbi's yoke. The man who finds joy in his children. That sounds pretty good, right? I mean, that sounds, we should hopefully have joy in our children. And the one who lives to see the downfall of his enemies. I'm I'm not sure Jesus said that. He says, happy the man who lives with a sensible woman. Oh, yeah, that sounds, I guess, good. Uh, Some of our non-sensible women in the room might disagree with that, right? And the one who, you all right up here? You all right? And the one who does not plow with an ox and a donkey combined. Well, that makes sense. Happy the one who does not sin with the tongue. Oh, that's good. And who does not serve an inferior. Now that sounds almost opposite of what Jesus said, right? Well, so what he's saying here is the way our world works. Our world works in the, in the level of influence, authority, power. And so happy is the one who has power, influence, and authority within the world. And so happy is the one who never has to serve someone who is their 
inferior. Instead, you are always in a superior position from them. Which is completely opposite of what Jesus would say in which we count others not as better than ourselves, but of the same standing as ourselves. And so we love others not better than ourselves, and we don't love ourselves better than others, but we love others as we love ourselves. We love each other equally. And so there is a position in Jesus' kingdom in which he says the kingdom of heaven is like the rabbi who gets down on his feet and he washes the feet of his inferiors. Of which this rabbi, Jesus ben Sira, would say, oh, that is a, that's a terrible position to be in. I wonder if Jesus washed his disciples' feet just because of the teachings of Jesus ben Sira, because Jesus ben Sira was a very popular teacher. In fact, we tend to be drawn to teachers who tell us how to get power. And yet Jesus consistently tells us to give power away. So this is a, this is a lot of what Jesus is doing with the Sermon on the Mount. He goes on to say, and, and I, you know, I don't even want to say chapter, chapter 25, verse 9, as if this is Scripture. This is the yoke of Ben Sirah. This is not um, within the Scripture in which you're not going to find this in your Bible. He says, happy the one who finds a friend. Okay, that sounds good. Who speaks to attentive ears. In other words, you are in a podium and others come to hear what you have to say. Happy is that person. How great is the one who finds wisdom, but none greater than the one who fears the Lord. I love how he tags that on there. Like you completely missed all the rest of what Scripture is supposed to be about. But you got that one in there, right? And what Jesus is doing is he's coming in, and I believe he has probably the words of Ben Sira on his mind, and he's trying to show them the kingdom of God does not belong to the people who can take it by force. The kingdom belongs to the people who have no force to offer. So as we come to this, and when we read um, these verses in these scriptures, again, this is not a, a pick list for you to go, okay, these are the, the, the nine things we need to start doing. This is how we evaluate what it means to know God. This is how we evaluate the kingdom of heaven. And we struggle with these because Jesus does not elaborate on each of these like, like we tend to do in the church. He just lays it out there. And then we come and we deal with it. We think about it. We struggle with it. What does this mean? But for this group of people who are coming to him, they have no power, they have no influence, they are not leaders in the church, they are not leaders in the community, they have no wealth. And to this group that gathers around him, we read the Beatitudes we've covered so far and are going to talk about just briefly today. Blessed are the poor in spirit and the meek. In other words, blessed are you that are here right now, that you have no influence and no one wants to listen to you and no one puts you on a podium or a stage. Blessed are you who struggle with just having the confidence that you even fit in in the world. Because the world says you fit in if you have something to offer and yet blessed are those who feel they have nothing to offer. Blessed are the poor in spirit and the meek. And he says, yours is the kingdom you have to remember, Jesus has just announced to the world the kingdom of God is what? Coming. That's not what he said. What did he say? It's here. It's embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is here. And he says, these who are poor in spirit, these who are meek, theirs is the kingdom. 
and they are going to inherit the earth. They have no political influence. They have no power. They don't have anyone that's hanging on their every words. They don't have a million followers on Instagram. In that kind of world and in that kind of economy, they feel like they don't fit. They have nowhere to go. We talked about uh, those who mourn will be comforted. And yet much of this hinges on the next beatitude that Scott talked about last week, this hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I'm not going to unpack what he said. You can go listen to what he said if, if you missed that. But righteousness is not just the, the place of being right, as if you can hold right over someone who is wrong. You know, Righteousness is that sense of being right with people. Like somebody is right with their family or right with their wife or their husband. It's like your best friend, you do right by your best friend. You know, you get... So, in other words, being righteous is this idea of we do what is just and holy and honors God. But there's also this relational component that righteousness is doing right by other people and doing right by God. And we begin to understand this idea of hungering and righteousness or hungering and thirsting for righteousness, we understand this as being hungered and thirsting to be right with God and to be right with other people. When that happens, your life is going to change. And in some ways, your life is going to get harder. There's a, there's a you know, TikTok um, template in which everybody does it. You know, you see one cute you know, clever video, and you think, oh, that's clever. And then you see 500 others, and you're like, that's not clever anymore, you know? There's one that I see, and it's, it's where the boyfriend texts his girlfriend or husband texts his wife, and he says, she's gone. You can come over now. And, if, and then he's, of course, filming this. She's walking out the door. She receives this text as if he's texting some other woman that's coming to the house. And then... Of course, the, the, the humor of the video is she turns around and she's mad and she comes back she's all over him. And you as the viewer know, ah, he's just joking, there's no other woman. So some of the idea of righteousness would be if, if she were to take him to court and say, he's cheating on me and there's an investigation and the judge looks into it and says, oh no, it was a joke, it was just a joke. He's been doing right by you. He's not entertaining any other relationships. He's doing right by you. And in that sense, that is a definition of righteousness. But at the same time, if you're the wife, you're thinking, he's not doing right by me if he's texting me that message. Right? Because my husband or my boyfriend or someone who cared about me wouldn't want me to think that. <laughs> so in, in that scenario, we, you can be righteous because you were doing right by them. You weren't out doing the thing you weren't supposed to be doing. But at the same time, you would not treat someone you care about that way. You're not doing right by your girlfriend or your wife by doing that. So this idea of hungering and thirsting for righteousness is this idea that we want to do right by others. We want to do right by God. We want to give good counsel. We want to help. We want to hold accountable at times. And the things that we hunger for, we tend to pursue and we are going to be satisfied by them. Scott talked about pizza or food. When I get hungry for pizza, what do y'all get hungry for? My kids get hungry for Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Jets pizza. 
Like, do you, if you have the freedom to leave work in the middle of the day, do you ever like wake up in the morning and think, you know what I like to have for lunch? And then that's all you can think about until lunchtime. And then you jump in your car and you'll go get that thing. I don't know what it is for you. You understand hungering and thirsting, right? It's like on your mind, it's this thing that you need and you're not going to be satisfied until you've obtained it. There are all kinds of things we can hunger and thirst for. But what Jesus is saying are blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting to do right by God and to do right by others. It is that idea of that restorative relationship that Jesus brings to us to what God intended for us we created as co-image bearers of God. You bear God's image. I grew up in a in a church that we talked about the uh, the primary default nature of people is is just bad. It's evil. And there are places in Scripture that you can point to. In other words, uh, we can read things like um, no one does what is right. No one. All are sinful and have fallen short. We can, we can find those places. But as we go back and we read through the biblical history of God's work with humanity, what we find is that when God created men and women, God said this is... He didn't just say this is good. He said this is very good. Our default nature is very good as people who are bearing the image of God. And yet what we find within those first three chapters of Scripture is that we have been influenced by something that is not. And there's not a single one of us who has escaped that influence. And so as we look for others and we look to do right by God and to do right by others, there is a sense that we are trying to return to the place in which God created us to be. So we hunger and we thirst for righteousness. And here's the thing, when you hunger and you thirst for righteousness, you mourn when there is not righteousness. And so if you are mourning because of the lack of righteousness in the world, you are blessed and you will be comforted. As we go on, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What Jesus is talking about here is there is a blessing for those, and he's talking to this group of people, this crowd that has surrounded him, and they're coming, and they're coming with the words of Jesus bar Sirah in their mind. They're coming with the yokes of the other rabbis in their mind. They're coming hearing from the Pharisees who are just trying to build their own personal kingdoms. He's, he's got all of these things in their minds, and these people are coming, and they have no social standing, and they have no Maybe some do, but most have no wealth. They have no influence. No one looks to them as the ideal kind of life in which anyone would want to have in this world. And yet God, Jesus looks down at them and he says, those of you who are poor in spirit and, and, and you feel you have nothing to offer, those of you who are struggling because you want to do right by God and right by others, and you mourn because you see this whole world is infected by not doing that, those who are merciful... And it's, they're not trying to punish everybody who does something wrong, but they're merciful just as God is merciful with us. Those who are pure in heart and, and you're just seeking God and the primary drive of your heart is to know and seek God. You, it's not that you will be blessed. It's that you are blessed. 
right now because the kingdom of God is here in front of you and it is for you. Not for all those other things. Maybe not even for those other people that rely on influence and power, economic status. But you who have none, kingdom of God is here, right here for you. Which does not mean, we have to remember, he is speaking to an audience. We have to understand his words and what does that mean for us? This does not mean that Jesus only welcomes into the kingdom those who are poor and and ignored. But if there is something within you that bases your value on your power and influence and wealth and status and how many people look up to you, you probably have missed the kingdom of God somewhere along the way. Because that's not what it's about. That's not what it's about. And when Jesus says this, um, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, he's, he's likely thinking of a couple of places in Old Testament Scriptures, because you know, Jesus didn't quote from the New Testament, right? Never quoted from the New Testament. So, right, it's, it's like a, a given. But sometimes we ignore that. We don't think about that. If you want to, if you want to mess with your um, theology, uh, when Scripture says uh, no one should add anything to these Scriptures, like you're talking about the Old Testament, I'll leave that there. We'll come. We'll unpack that another day. All right. Psalm 24 says, "Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart." who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. This is likely on the mind of Jesus as he's talking about those who are pure in heart. Or Psalm 73 that says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And this is the struggle we have today. Psalm 73. I look at those who don't follow the teachings of Jesus, and they seem to be doing better than me. So maybe I should follow their example. Like, like they don't serve other people. And they have more time for themselves. Maybe I should follow their example. Or they take advantage of others. They don't, they don't do what's right. They take advantage. They oppress. They take more than they should. And they're doing pretty well. I mean, if you see what they drive, like maybe, maybe that's what I should do. That's exactly what the psalmist is saying here. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So they don't just care about influence or affluence. The pure in heart, they want to see God. They want to pursue Him. They want to seek Him. They want to, to know who this really is and have Him in their life and a part of their life. Not just for what they want Him to be or to become, but who are you? I need you. I want you. I want to pattern my life after you. What does it look like to really see you? I really don't know many people who really love Jesus that don't somewhere deep inside them, just look forward to seeing God one day. I just want to be in His presence. I just, I just, want, to, I just want to see it. You know, 
I don't have to necessarily go into the throne room, you know, but but I just want to see him. There's this draw in those who have found this life through Christ that says, I just, oh, this is so good. Oh man, I just this is what I want. Jesus says, if that's you, if that's if that's what you want, the kingdom of God is here right among you. You're going to see God. In fact, he could go on to say, you, you who are looking at me now, see him now. A beautiful picture of what it means to be pure in heart. This is a great example of why this can't be a pick list of things that we're supposed to do. Can you imagine reading this and going, okay, I want to be blessed, so I'm going to be pure in heart from now on. <laughs> Can you imagine that? How frustrating and difficult that would be First, like, what's not pure about you? You'd have to figure that out, and you'd have to stop all the impure stuff. And then you would have to do all the right things, right? You'd have to make sure, well, gosh, what are the, what are the right things I'm supposed to be doing? And, and it is exhausting, and it is frustrating, and that goes against what Jesus said about his yoke, which was, take my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy. It feels very burdensome to set out to become pure in heart. And then we do read those passages that says, no one is righteous, no one. And it's like, well then, who's Jesus? Is he, like Jesus, is he being a real jerk here and just saying, you know what? Blessed are the people that no one like this ever has or will exist. That would be a terrible sermon. But those are the kinds of weights that rabbis would put on people. It still do. And if I'm honest, I've done it. I've done it. The line of proclamation and shaming is very thin at times. Jesus never shamed. Sometimes it's difficult to know where that line is. The point is not that you're going to get set out and you're just going to be absolutely pure. No impure thought will enter into your head and you're just going to be from now on perfect. Is You will give up because it is not possible. The pure in heart is not something we're supposed to go out and now we're supposed to be absolutely perfect as if there is no sin in ourselves or the world, but it is a drive, a desire, a pursuit that we seek this thing that's so much better and greater than us. This is what Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes. He's introducing his teaching by saying, you who are here and this is what you're looking for and this is what you want and you've been looking for God and you've been mourning because you see how messed up the world is and you feel poor in spirit like this is what I want and my heart just burns for this and yet no one cares about me and no one wants to know what I think about anything and I have no power. Everybody that does have power seems absolutely corrupt. Jesus is saying, I get it. Kingdom belongs to you. If you do want to pursue purity, I do think it's a worthy pursuit. I'm not suggesting we just give up on purity. The Psalms give us help there as well. Psalm 119 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. This is the pursuit of followers of Jesus. This is the pursuit. He goes on to say, blessed are the peacemakers. And again, when we understand that those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness to do right by God and to do 
right by others, you are going to come into contact with conflict. Every leader, every person, when they stumble onto conflict, you've probably heard it said, have two buckets. Have you ever heard this? No? Oh, good. You will now. Buckets. They have a bucket of water and they have a bucket of gas. So when we stumble into conflict, which do we use on the fire? Do we try to put the fire out or do we step back and we let it burn? <laughs> we just let it burn. Now, I know other people in here like things to burn. Um, like set fires, right? No, don't do that. Which bucket are we? I mean, I would have loved for Jesus to have used that analogy, although I don't think they were using fossil fuels at the time. But I would have loved to have seen him use that analogy. Blessed are those who put water on fires. Not because we're trying to squash every conflict, because not every conflict needs to be squashed. Right? When you have conflict and on the pursuit of good over evil, you don't want to end the conflict of good over evil, right? So sometimes there's going to be conflict. In fact, he ends this section of the Beatitudes talking about those who seek these things. You eventually will have conflict on your own because people will reject you for living and wanting these types of things. If you do right by other people, eventually you're going to be persecuted because not everybody wants you to do right by them. To some people, the idea of doing right by me is to give me everything I want. And we know that that's not always healthy. And if you're trying to do right by your kids and they say, I want, I want everything, and you give them everything, that is a guarantee that they are going to have a very difficult life and you are going to have a very difficult life. And so at times when you do right by your kids, your kids get really mad at you. Anybody testify to that? Yeah, no. Everybody who has kids in the room are not raising their hand, but everybody who doesn't have kids in the room are raising their hand, right? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. When you see somebody not doing right by somebody else, you want to move in and you want to, you want to help correct that. And if you wonder, well, gosh, when are the times that we let conflict rage? And when are the times that we try to put conflict out as quickly as possible? And I would say this is the purpose of Scripture. To say there's tension and there's mystery and there's seeking. God, do you want me to intervene in this conflict or not? And this is how they would have approached the Sermon on the Mount. They would have said, oh, blessed are the peacemakers. What does it look like for me to do right by others? What does it look like for me to do right by God? This is the inward struggle that every follower has, and in that struggle is blessing. Ephesians 6.12, this is why Paul says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's not about the people. When we have a breakdown in relationship, it's because the people have believed the wrong things about each other, about themselves, about God, about life. Our struggle is spiritual. We don't go out and just seek to blind people into submission into what we think is right and good and healthy, but yet we are seeking 
what ends up happening when you begin to embrace the idea that the greatest commandment is to love God and the second is to love others like ourselves. We begin to embrace the Sermon on the Mount and we see these as blessings to a group of people who felt that they had nothing of any value in the world. And God says, you have the greatest thing of value that has ever been or ever will be. Because they see the world differently, deal with the world differently. They've accepted the story of Scripture as it's been told from the very beginning. Not just a few places that we feel comfortable talking about and embracing. What will happen when you hunger and thirst for righteousness is that you will begin to be merciful. You will be pure in heart. You will be peacemakers. And not that you will be blessed, but you already are. What would it look like for us today to not be pursuing the blessing, but to say, look how blessed are right now. I know a lot of people that pursue blessings, but very few that say, wow, I am so blessed. I am just so blessed. It's a different way of viewing the world. It's a different way of viewing the Scriptures. Let me leave you with this. Something to wrestle with and to think about. And If you're on the top of your game, if you have influence and affluence, if you have power wherever it is, at work or at home or in your friend group or in, an, in the church or wherever, the gospel is not safe. It is the most unsafe thing to enter into the world since creation. It will mess up your relationships. It will mess up your view of life. It will mess up the pursuit of the American dream. It will mess you up. But at the same time, the gospel is the safest thing in the world. Because there is rest for your souls. There is a relationship with God. There is reconciliation with people. There is hope in a world that feels full of hopelessness. Gospel is not safe. And at the same time, it is the safest thing you will ever find. What Jesus is saying is the kingdom is here, so for those of you who feel powerless, wrongs will be made right. Humanity is going to be restored to the thing that God created them to be. Those who are being unfairly persecuted will be made right. They are blessed. They will see God. They will inherit this kingdom. And the kingdom is here and it's available to you right now. So maybe Jesus would pull those aside if he could. He, I don't know if he could read their thoughts. I imagine he probably could. Or at least he understood humanity enough to assume what they were thinking. And he would say to them, perhaps if he had a one-on-one after, do you feel like you have no power or influence? Kingdom's yours. Kingdom's yours. Do you feel... Like you don't matter. Nobody cares that you are alive today. Kingdom's yours. It's here for you. Are you someone who struggles with the brokenness that's in the world? Brokenness between people, between families, between communities? Kingdom. Kingdom's yours. God's making this right. Are you someone who 
feels hopeless about the conflict that you see between the people you love, the people you care about, and you want that conflict to end, and you want them to be restored, and you want them to have healthy relationships, and you're just struggling that this is never, this conflict is never going to be over. God cares about that. You are blessed, even in the midst of your mourning. So if I leave you with something to do, this is not the past, this is not the types of messages that you leave with something to do. But if I were to give you something to do because you want something to do, I would say let us pursue God in all of our relationships and most importantly with God Himself. He tends to make things work out in the lives of those who seek Him. He tends to answer in those times when you're not sure, should I intervene, should I not? Is this a conflict that needs water or is this a conflict I need to let burn for a while? God tends to show that to those who are seeking. And for those who feel the weight of a yoke that has been placed on you that says you're not good enough, you'll never be good enough, you sin too much, you say the wrong things, you don't look the part, you're messed up too much, God can't love you, God can't care about you, God's never going to be there for you, it's hopeless for you. For those who feel that way and you feel that the teachings that have been placed upon your shoulders are burdensome and heavy and are crushing you, I would just reiterate the words of Jesus when he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Wherever you are in that, the kingdom of God is for you. It is for us. We get to go share this kingdom with our families and our friends and the people we work with. And what you'll find next week when we close out the Beatitudes around is that we're going, when we begin to seek these things, people tend to get upset with us, even though they sound so great and so good. And why wouldn't everybody want this? And yet Jesus says, this is going to lead to persecution for many of you because of me, because of this thing that I'm telling you is so good and your blessing is all about this, but it's going to lead to some persecution. How do we deal with that? We're going, to, we're going to talk about that next week when people don't go along with what we believe is good and right and healthy. And how do we deal with that? But for today, if you feel that you have no value, Jesus says you have ultimate value. If you feel that you have no place of influence, God says you, the kingdom is yours. If you feel that you don't matter in this world, You matter ultimately to Him. And He wants to work through you to bring others to Him too. Father, I thank You for the opportunity for us to gather and to worship. Thank You for Your love, Your graciousness, the mercy You show us over and over again. Father, I thank You for Your forgiveness when we fail at these things, which is inevitable. Thank You for blessing us even when we fail to be pure in heart. Thank you for forgiving us when we fail to be merciful even though we have received so much mercy from you. Thank you. Thank you for comforting us when we mourn and for forgiving us when we decide we are not going to allow ourselves to mourn again. We're going to harden our hearts and just be like the rest of the world. Thank you for forgiving us when we do that and drawing us back. Thank you that as we pursue you, you promise us we are going to see you This is not all for nothing. Help us to follow you all we do. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. All right. Y'all have a great week. Um, if you want to jump on our Zoom call, that'll be Wednesday night at 7. Uh, we are, the link is going to be on our Facebook page. And uh, I'd love for you to join us. Even uh, There are some people who have joined it, by the way, and I'm not going to name any names, but one of them is in the room today that still hasn't read anything, but he keeps joining our Zoom call. He knows who he is. He's smiling right now. If you've not read anything, join us. It's a great time of community, fellowship, and just struggle. And you have something to offer to that conversation, too. All right? Have a great week.